Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today it gives me great pleasure to share with you the first in a three-part series in association with the Pre-Distribution Initiative and their co-founder and executive director, Delilah Rothenberg. The Pre-Distribution Initiative is a multi-stakeholder effort to improve investment structures and share wealth and influence with workers and the community to create incentives that allow for more investment that's responsible and helps to address some of the systemic risks that we're seeing in the market today. The first episode is looking at the institutionalization of capital and the consolidation of capital flows. That will be an episode of both Delilah and Denise Hearn, who is the co-author of The Myth of Capitalism and also the board chair of the Pre-Distribution Initiative. The second episode, which you'll hear in the coming weeks, is around systemic risks and investment structures. And then the third episode we'll look at is looking towards more regenerative investment structures to help address some of these problems that we've been talking about over the past three weeks. I hope you enjoy the conversations. Delilah, given your role at the as a founder and executive director of the Pre-Distribution Network, maybe can you give the, the audience a bit of a background to you? How did you get involved in Pre-Distribution Initiative? What was the the starting point for you to actually want to you know, create something like this? Sure. Thanks, Alex. Really excited to be here with Denise um, and yourself. Uh, we started the Pre-Distribution Initiative in early 2019. And, um, you know, my interest really stemmed from some of the lessons learned from working in private capital markets in particular. I guess it might be helpful to have some brief background on myself. I spent the first four years of my career um, in public equities and sell-side research, um, equity sales at Bear Stearns, and um, previously, uh, before that, a smaller research shop. And um, then really knew that I wanted to make the shift to private equity and focusing on um, underserved markets like sub-Saharan Africa around the time of the financial crisis. I was actually at Bear Stearns during the financial crisis on the trading floor. Really, um, I think that experience had a huge impact on me uh, in ways that I only started to realize over the following years. But um, my work in private equity really started in raising capital and managing financial models and pitch decks and um, investor relations and uh, quickly evolved because of the focus on sub-Saharan Africa to include ESG and impact investing. And I actually had a, a, a bit of an activist background as a teenager, so that really resonated with me. And um, the I think that ESG and impact investing really got an early start in frontier markets like sub-Saharan Africa because a lot of the investors were development finance institutions like the IFC. And the IFC had performance standards on environmental and social sustainability and environmental health and safety guidelines. And so I became uh, very involved with making sure that the investments uh, were compliant with these kinds of standards. And uh, over the years, I ended up also focusing on developed markets. And it was interesting to me once I started doing work in private equity in the US that there were these mega fund managers out there who were charging 2% management fees and 20% carried interest on billions of dollars of assets under management. I worked at uh, 
relatively smaller uh, private equity firm. But, um, you know, certainly a lot of the big players are managing tens, if not, you know, 100 plus billion dollars of AUM. And so when these asset managers say that they're integrating ESG, they're integrating ESG at the portfolio company level, which means that they might think about things like a living wage or, you know, worker protections, but they're not really thinking about how they themselves might be exacerbating economic inequality by the compensation levels that their executives have, because the rate of wealth of these executives is growing at an exponentially faster rate than workers in or beneficiaries of portfolio companies, even when these asset managers say that they're integrating ESG or doing impact investing. And that was sort of the first realization I had that I couldn't really um, be that impactful working in the industry, I had to step out of the industry to to help raise awareness about the issues uh, that are happening at the investment structure and fund manager level. Issues like fund manager executive compensation, whether uh, funds are domiciled in tax havens, um, the over-leveraging of uh, portfolio companies that can often happen in leverage buyout strategies uh, uh, has really concerned civil society stakeholders in terms of what that means for workers as well as communities um, who are who are stakeholders of those portfolio companies, uh, lobbying and political spend at the fund manager level. These are all issues that aren't really captured by existing ESG and impact data measurement and management frameworks. And a lot of asset owners and allocators aren't asking for their asset managers to report on these issues and aren't even thinking about how their allocations to certain asset classes like highly leveraged buyout strategies or like uh, certain venture capital strategies can really exacerbate, um, not just exacerbate, but really contribute to um, some of the issues that we see in the economy. So I've also got Denise Hearn on the line that many of the listeners may have heard back episode 50 when we talk really about, um, Denise, your book, The Myth of Capitalism. Delilah, maybe if you give the first intro, how did you come become aware of Denise? And, and then we'll go to Denise to sort of give a bit of context in terms of what, what's got you involved in the pre-distribution network as well. Or the initiative, pre-distribution initiative, I should say. Yeah. So um, when I first started thinking about starting the pre-distribution initiative, I, uh, I'm, I'm an avid reader of the Financial Times. And I think it was Martin Wolf who might have reviewed The Myth of Capitalism and highly recommended it. And so I thought, you know, this looks like a really good book. I want to read it. And it must have been the winter of 2018, and I uh, treated myself to a retreat in Nicaragua and uh, read the book at this eco-friendly resort in Nicaragua. And um, that I think is a really- horrible reading companion for <laughs> Nicaraguan <laughs> retreat. I just have to say, I don't recommend that. <laughs> It was wonderful Um, and it was really inspiring and I did not know Denise and I didn't even think to reach out to Denise. And then a few months later, a friend said, I really want you to meet a friend of mine named Denise Hearn. And I was like, no way, I want to meet Denise. And so we connected and um, it was, it was love at first sight. Denise, it was. <laughs> is that true, Denise? Totally. <laughs> oh my gosh, one hundred percent. Yes, and uh, I do just want to say that the book was obviously co-authored by Jonathan Tepper, um, who really provided a, a lot of the foundational thinking for 
for the book. Um, but yeah, that's how Delilah and I originally connected. And uh, and now I'm board chair of the pre-distribution initiative, which is fantastic. And it's been, it's actually been wonderful because, you know, I think in the book, uh, obviously we focused predominantly on uh, the concentration of industries and sort of corporate consolidation. And I left after publishing the book, I felt a little dissatisfied with some of the solution sets that we had offered because I think, you know, we focused on things like, of course, more antitrust enforcement, merger review, and, um, to, you know, principles-based approaches to regulatory reform that would try to ameliorate some of the worst of it. But I was left feeling like, you know, it was a piece of a much larger puzzle. And so I went on a journey myself uh, for, I started my own firm and started doing a bunch of projects that were related to trying to understand, you know, what the, what the, I didn't really use this language at the time, but what the driving the sort of system incentives were and the mechanisms of monopoly that underpin the entire economy. And so when Delilah and I connected, we, it really was love at first sight because I felt like a lot of the questions she was asking and, and the perspectives she were, she was articulating were really a follow on from the work that we had done in the book and placing it in a larger context of, um, you know, these, these issues as we see them showing up in asset management as well. It's interesting because in the book, it was more focused about the actual industries, but more traditional industries that people think about in terms of whether it's, it's tech or within um, cement manufacturer or airplanes and so forth. What specifically we're looking at today is more about the institutionalization of capital and almost the power of asset managers. What, what actually took you from sort of thinking about traditional sectors to these asset managers and their power? Well, I think, I mean, I would credit Delilah um, quite a bit in terms of, I think she's been one of the leading voices in articulating that there was uh, in some ways an overemphasis on the firm level without looking at sort of system level incentives um, at, you know, and and how in, as you've just mentioned, how um, it's kind of a full stack in terms of you've got concentrated asset managers that then, you know, invest in concentrated industries, which, you know, exacerbates, you know, sort of like the, the consolidation or the, the market power of specific firms um, and all the way down. And so I think sort of placing it in that larger context is, is very important to actually get at the fundamental drivers and then try to create different solution sets. I'm curious, Delilah, that really, as you think about it, the market power within these asset managers, you know, they've got so much capital flow going to them, you know, also because that's just people want to invest in the largest companies or largest asset managers, they perceive them to be safer. But ultimately, the structure of these asset managers is to gain as much wealth as they can, gain as much assets under management. And through that process, they're ending up taking on more debt they're buying more assets, they're asset harvesting, and, and their power is is stronger than anyone now at the moment. And it feels like there's a bit of a, a war going on between asset owners, so the pension funds or the superannuation funds in Australia, versus the asset managers that really have the control at the end of the day. Like, How do you think about that battle um, in terms of you know, who actually can move the dial in, in trying to address some of these problems that you've, you've mentioned? Yeah, one of the things that we look at in our paper, ESG 2.0, Investor Risks Beyond the Enterprise Level, is that capital has become very institutionalized since, for instance, the 1950s. And uh, what that means is that instead of uh, many individuals uh, managing their own financial assets, there are pension funds and um, 401ks. And when you have large institutional investors and they're investing in, they have so much capital to deploy, they need to do it efficiently. And they frequently 
like you said, because of, of trust, they trust these large asset managers, um, but it's also efficiency. They need to deploy large amounts of capital at a time and um, they have concentration limits. So that's a risk management mechanism to avoid being too large a percentage of any particular fund. And there are a whole number of factors in addition to that that really limit institutional investors from investing in smaller emerging or niche fund managers. And what ends up happening is that there are few large fund managers in various asset classes. We started with looking at private equity, but you can see these trends in private debt. You can see it in venture capital. You can see it in public equities, um, as Denise has been in doing a lot of work around. And then these large asset managers have huge chunks of capital to deploy, and they end up deploying that into larger and larger companies. And so there's this ripple effect that's happening through the capital markets value chain, where um, in order to deploy capital efficiently, uh, there's, there's a consolidation effect going on. And it's not just consolidation that's a problem in terms of all of the, the negative impacts of that consolidation that, for instance, the book that Denise co-authored covers, but also for institutional investors, it means less diversification. It means higher valuations because there's so much capital chasing the same deals. When you have higher valuations, you end up having higher incentives to layer on leverage, particularly in a low interest rate environment. And now we're in a situation where we have non-financial corporate debt that's at historical highs with very weak covenants um, and, uh, and a very fragile economy because companies have weak capital structures. And there's there are increasingly correlations between asset classes. And there's this kind of pro-cyclical behavior that's happening that's just making it very difficult to achieve attractive returns anymore. And, and we really believe, and we're doing more research around this, that it can be traced back to the consolidation and the institutionalization of capital. And um, are ex we're exploring ways to work with institutional investors to deconsolidate their capital flows, to invest in more niche strategies, emerging managers, that'll get more capital into small, medium-sized enterprises throughout the economy. It'll be better for diversification. It'll be better for valuations. It'll be better for deleveraging. There's so many positive impacts of doing this kind of, um, pursuing this kind of uh, deconsolidation as, of capital flows, as we're calling it. One of the things that's just such an interesting you know, dichotomy of, of, of issues, in particularly in the Australian market, there's a huge focus on fees for the superannuation funds, the pension funds, to to concern themselves with how much fees they're paying to these different managers. And it's seen as really avoid at all costs. Um, and there's a real pressure to, to drive down the fees that you're paying to these asset managers. So ultimately then, as a, as a fund, as a super fund, you're then going to be looking for asset managers that charge the least amount of fees. And unfortunately, that ends up being these largest funds that just have such huge scale and they're the ones that, that can undercut everyone else. So you're perpetuating the problem just because of the structure. So you almost need to go back to the regulators of these, of these pension funds in terms of you know, what actually makes sense from a fee perspective. If you think about it from a consumer point of view, Everyone knows that Amazon is is uh, gouging people um, and gouging the sellers particularly, um, but you're looking for where's the cheapest place to buy things. And so people end up being naturally um, attached to places where, where it's cheapest. And unfortunately, sometimes the cheapest places are the largest organizations. So it's all good to think about, well, how do I find the next emerging manager that, that's great? But then you've got this fee um, budget that sits over your head. How do you address that problem? Do you want to go first, Denise, or? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a really great point in terms of the economies of scale that show up, you know, in different industries and um, particularly in the asset management industry where you've had the fee reduction essentially to zero, you know, on passive investing in particular, then that, as you say, has been one of the factors that has certainly caused it to proliferate to such a degree. And it also means that even if you have other new entrants or competitors, it, it's like very unlikely that it will help reduce um, concentration because it's just so difficult to make that work if it's not at scale. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't actually have a great answer to that, but I would say that particularly for ESG managers, I think there's been um, a focus on sort of investing in index, you know, ESG index funds and various things. And I think particularly when you look at the type, the top holdings in a lot of ESG funds, they tend to be predominantly tech firms, uh, which are obviously monopolized industries. Um, and there's there's great work by a guy named Vincent Deluard out of um, a firm called Stonex Macro, and he has done research that shows that there's a direct inverse correlation between e, uh, companies with high ESG ratings and their effective tax rate that they pay, uh, their corporate tax rate, and particularly because the tech firms tend to be uh, tend to show up and predominate in the in the holdings, they also tend to be some of the players, aside from Amazon, that employ the fewest workers. So uh, ESG funds are inadvertently, you know, subsidizing firms that don't employ many workers and, um, and pay, you know, pay lower taxes and are monopolies. Um, And I say this to say that I think the ESG industry has, I, I think one of the solution sets would actually be to take a more active approach, uh, once again, to considering these types of issues. And uh, I think that, you know, we'll have to, maybe Delilah has a good answer on the on the fee question, but I do think that if we are wanting to actually get to the actual impact that we say that we would like to have, we're going to have to do more than invest in passive ESG index funds uh, as, you know, as the solution set. Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, what Denise said. I, I have two two additions. One is, um, you know, index funds, because they have such huge sums of capital to invest, also, and, and I'm not the first one to say this, I think that there's been significant work done um, on this, and it's cited in a book by one of our advisors, Beyond Modern Portfolio Theory, Investing That Matters. And it, that's not what the book is about, but they they highlight and they recognize that there are concerns out there that index funds are resulting in a kind of um, de facto momentum style trading where we're moving away from fundamentals, uh, company fundamentals, and we're really starting to uh, trade based on you know sentiment and uh, macro factors and um, or you know a company gets added to the index and um, that changes everything and so that can be very problematic for the real economy and have systematic risk that boomerangs back to investors. There, uh, there have also been concerns in the corporate credit markets in terms of uh, the underlying credits of those uh, ETFs. And um, I think that was addressed by the government intervention during this pandemic, but there was definitely concern that there could have been a, a some sort of credit crisis stemming from uh, the way those ETFs were structured. And then the only other thing I'd say is that in terms of the fees, I think that it's a different issue in ETFs than it is in private equity, because as a private equity 
equity firms get larger, they're still charging, you know, 1.52% on um, even larger amounts of AUM. And uh, there's an incentive to pursue asset gathering uh, to a certain extent versus uh, targeting returns and certain hurdle rates. And even once these fund managers become large enough, I think that there can be some pushback on even having a hurdle rate. Um, And so a lot of compensation does come from fees. And if you look at some of these publicly traded private equity funds and their uh, investor presentations, they talk about proudly the fee revenue that they're generating. And, um, and, and that's, that's not changing. There's no real economies of scale being realized uh, or reflected in the fee structures in private equity. Occasionally, a very large investor can negotiate um, a lower fee, and some managers have come down a bit when they reach very high levels of AUM. But um, you know, one point five to two percent is still pretty, pretty standard. I think the challenge, though, if you think about it from a, a private equity standpoint, their argument would be that we we're able to generate value to our investors. We're able to build our network. We're able to finance these deals. And the one to 2% fee that we charge is, you know, is, is fair, right? That would be their argument. Likewise, you don't, you don't complain about a Microsoft or an Atlassian charging 80% gross margins on their products. You seem to think that that's okay. But for a private equity firm, that would be their argument that we've we've found some secret source and we're selling people on the deal. Like what, I guess, what should people then think about in terms of how to, how to answer that part of the question? Well, one of the things that we talk about in our paper is that with increasing AUM, you end up having to uh, invest that in often, not always, but larger and larger deals. And if you, if you have a bunch of managers chasing the same large deals, then the valuations are going to go up and it's going to be hard to generate returns without layering on, uh, debt. And so I don't think it's, I, I, there, and there's also data, if you look at um, PitchBook, for instance, that some of the largest fund managers that uh, are often oversubscribed, they don't have the best returns in the market, but they don't have the worst returns either. And so it's one of those dynamics where I think that investment consultants and investment professionals on the asset owner and allocator side have that, you know, nobody ever got fired for hiring McKinsey or IBM. Uh, mentality with some of these brand name private equity firms, and uh, and these private equity firms just have so much power to be able to then say, well, we're not going to change our management fee because we're oversubscribed and we don't really need you. Um, and the other thing is, they there are a lot of good arguments out there that these managers should be relying more on performance fees than the management fee. Like maybe the management fee could be an annual GNA budget proposed to the LPAC of each fund so that it's not growing so disproportionately relative to the fund's costs of doing business. Um, you know, certainly these fund managers should be well compensated if they're performing well, but the level of fees generated on tens of billions or hundreds of billions of AUM is it's just not necessary. How much do you think that that's potentially a problem of the amount of debt that they're able to use? Because just debt in terms of corporate structures has a significant advantage because it's a tax deduction. The interest that you pay on is a tax deduction. You know, should the should the fees that are charged just be on the equity component? You know, you're you're really 
um, benchmarked against what performance you have on equity um, as opposed to the whole valuation. And there's some almost penalty for the amount of leverage because you mentioned at the start that there's a real concern about the amount of leverage in the system. Should there be a penalty almost attached to the amount of leverage that you have because that leverage is creating systemic risk that ultimately the central banks are going to have to back end or through some sort of fiscal policy to try and help back end these problems. Is that one way that we should maybe think about how to address the problem? Yeah, you know, I had previously um, primarily focused my comments on the management fees, except for my brief comment on um, on our hurdle rates, which is more tied to the carry. And I think I think what you're suggesting is um, really focused on the carry that the fund manager could earn. Um, and I hadn't thought about it before to tie that to the amount of leverage. I think it could be very interesting. Um, I do think that one of the one of the things that we're interested in doing is having conversations with asset owners and allocators because I'm not sure that they even realize at this stage how dangerous leverage can be for the financial system. And sometimes uh, high leverage can be attractive to them, particularly in a low interest rate environment. And so um, it, I'd be very interested to hear what asset owner and allocator f- feedback is on that on that suggested approach um, and workshopping that a bit. So it's a very interesting idea. Denise, I I would really be curious around your thoughts around sort of the drive to passive, particularly in the ESG space. It's really a a wild west out there in terms of marketing um, and people trying to really show their words around how great they are from an ESG perspective. And then you start to look into the underlying businesses that they have and vastly uh, it's dominated by tech, very high monopoly style situation. How do you then go about educating asset allocators around, look, this doesn't line up with the true ESG framework. Is that a fair analogy, I guess, in the first instance? And then how would you educate them in terms of actually thinking about the second derivative rather than just ticking ESG boxes? Yeah, that's exactly right. The the framing you used, which is sort of second order effects. I think most people are looking for tick box exercises around diversity. You know, what's, how many diverse people are on the board or, um, you know, somewhat superficial indicators of of um, of ESG impact. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do with this project is demonstrate more of a systems lens to think about the, you know, as an example, so you have Google who ranks highly on treating its employees well, but most people don't know that Google is actually more than 50% contract workers who, you know, have somewhat unstable employment with them. Um, so I think people need to be asking much deeper questions about what we mean when we talk about even things like employee welfare or social benefit. And to Delilah's point, a lot of the a lot of the things that we're uncovering are structural that um, that cause instability in the economy overall, and that you know fundamentally also can affect worker bargaining power. As an example, so you know some of the firms use really abusive tactics in their um, in their contracts. And so they might have mandatory arbitration clauses where they bar you from um, class actions or, or from taking them um, to court, or they might have non-compete clauses, things that really restrict worker power. And in, in an environment where um, so much of the economy is highly concentrated, and you've also seen at the same time a decline in worker power through things like you know, union and, unions and collective bargaining, it makes it much more difficult for workers to assert themselves against, you know, how's a worker going to bargain with a monopolist? It's very difficult. And so I think, again, so much of this centers on really understanding 
power and market power and who holds it and how it's wielded and how it can be used negatively against workers, against suppliers and entrepreneurs, against consumers. And those are the core issues I think ESG managers um, and investors should really start to key in on a little bit more specifically um, and intentionally because they, they, you know, affect, they affect everything. Um, And I think that's, those are some of the things that we're trying to unearth in these conversations. I'm curious, Denise, around sort of how do you see the sort of the trade-off between long-term and short-term as, as investors think about their, their allocations, how much that actually drives a lot of these problems, because many of the pension funds will say we're very long-term investors, 10, 20, 30 years, but then they're benchmarking themselves against quarterly returns. And so if you think about that dichotomy that they face, they're really driven to gain as much efficiency as they can from their investments, try to squeeze out as much returns as they want. And they're actually continuing this process that you're trying to unwind. Right. And I, I really think it's a false dichotomy too when we say, you know, oh, long-term investing is 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 the panacea or long-term thinking, because you know, you one could argue that Wall Street investors were incredibly long-term in terms of subsidizing Amazon for 20 years while it was unprofitable. Um, the same thing with Uber. Uber has never turned a profit, uh, and yet we continue to invest in it. And so one could argue, oh, that's real long-term thinking, but all all that you've done is actually allowed a firm to continue to acquire market power across industries through, um, you know, whether it's mergers and acquisitions or whether it's um, leveraging its market power in one sector to expand horizontally into another and essentially giving them the runway to be able to develop those economies of scale or, you know, monopolize, essentially uh, monopolized industries um, to where then they can start to extract potential rents, which is how you know, a lot of a lot of the system is currently rewarding shareholders, and so I yeah. So I, th- I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy to sort of just say that long term thinking is is the solution. And I totally agree with you that even though there there are so many structural incentives to your point in terms of even you can call yourself long term, but the quarterly earnings reports are still the predominant way that people are measuring the success of these companies, and um, you know, and that I imagine you know, investment managers are sort of uh, hitting their benchmarks and various things. So I think, yeah, I think that is a problem. The other question that I wanted to ask you, and it's sort of a, an, an evolution from the book as well in terms of monopolies and, and I guess some, some issues to try and address them, is that we're effectively seeing monopolies within the, within the asset management space. We've got some very large players, multi-trillion dollar holdings. Should we really be thinking about almost antitrust within that part of the market? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're essentially in, you know, the age of asset management, as it's been called, um, with the big three exerting influence and and ownership. You know, they manage over $15 trillion in combined global AUM, um, which is, I think, was three quarters of US GDP in 2020. And um, on average, the big three own 22% of an S&P 500 company. And so there's really three main concerns that people have with that. One is uh, common ownership or horizontal ownership, which we can get to. The second is some of what Delilah referred to earlier with sort of the systemic risk and from market distortions that that's causing. And then the third is actually the market power of firm of those firms themselves. And um, you know, it's interesting because people can argue, oh, well, because they're, you know, they're asset managers and a lot of their holdings are passive. They don't, and because they're not issuing debt like a bank is, they don't have the same sort of 
um, influence in the economy. But I, you know, I think that just simply because they're not providing credit or leverage doesn't mean that they, it doesn't preclude them from occupying really essential positions in the economy. And there was actually a really interesting paper out of, um, from some, some um, Swiss academics who analyzed basically the entire global ownership network and structure. And they found that, you know, less than 0.0009% of actors in the entire global ownership network um, have the potential to influence about a sixth of operating revenue of firms worldwide. And of course, you know, BlackRock and, um, uh, and Vanguard show up at top of their list in terms of that superstructure that really controls, even though they may not sort of actively be controlling, they still have this um, position, what they call the supercluster. And what was also interesting about their research is they said that the, the power structure actually remains totally intact, uh, regardless of recessions or, you know, global economic downturns, but sometimes the actors will rotate in and out. But the, the essential power structure uh, always sort of stays the same. So I think, and I mean, we can get into those, the other factors around horizontal ownership and sort of the market distortions, but um, I do think that it is something that actively should be looked at. I don't know. I don't know what antitrust against some of these actors would look like, but it does, you know, I think a lot of the points that Delilah's raised, when you have this much um, influence, power, and wealth concentrated in such few firms, it does have these distorting effects across so much of the economy. Delilah, that's a perfect segue to you around how do you deal with these problems and then how do you influence somebody that just has so much control that can almost push back on, on everything, right? They can they can just say, look, we choose not to take a position here. Um, and then what do you do, right? If, they've, if they're such a big controller, um, how do you address that? Um, I think it's important to highlight to asset owners and allocators that uh, they have an incentive to not contribute to the consolidation of asset management, particularly the large institutional asset owners and allocators. So um, explaining to a pension fund or an insurance company or a sovereign wealth fund how if they are consolidating uh, their capital with very large asset managers, that can contribute to the issues that we've talked about throughout uh, this conversation. And those issues do result in financial stability risks. Uh, they result in lower overall returns. They result in a need for potential government bailouts. Those have the, those bailouts and government inter interventions have, you know, long-term uh, impacts on institutional investors in the form of, for instance, low interest rates, um, or the impact on the, the integrity of the U.S. dollar. And there are real issues that eventually start to manifest in the economy when these. Uh, when these trends occur for too long. And so there needs to be some more education with asset owners and allocators about, um, about these issues. I think you guys talked about incentive structures before uh, the asset owners, institutional asset owners and allocators should be thinking about how can we incentivize our own investment professionals to think longer term. Valuation methodologies have something to do with that. IRR, a frequent metric used in private equity has a strong time value of money component. You want to make as much money back as fast as possible. That's not long-term oriented. Um, you know, you also want to think about um, how frequently are performance reviews conducted? Are they conducted every year? Are they conducted every three years? Are they conducted every five years? Um, 
And so there's been a lot of attention to corporate executive compensation and whether that's structured in a long-term way, there also needs to be more attention to asset owner and allocator incentive structures and really the long-term planning of an institution so that they can think a decade out and say, if we're going to invest with these large managers, what are the long-term impacts going to be uh, for us? And that requires education of trustees and CIOs in particular. That's uh, that's going to be a real change because I think that's that's the critical piece, which is getting the alignments there from a financial perspective that actually then drives the underlying behaviour. Denise, I, I switch back to you in terms of you know how do you then encourage asset owners to look beyond the large um, asset managers, particularly when they've got this feeling and almost a perception. Going back to your point, where if you invest in these large asset managers, that you can't get fired. Um, and likewise, if there's any larger collapse in the market, chances are they'll be supported rather than some of the smaller groups, the 200, 300 million dollar groups, because they can be allowed to fail and no one cares. So how do you then sort of address that problem? I mean, I think that's a fundamental psychological human problem around reputational risk that's really hard to solve um, because it's not necessarily, I mean, it's very rational for people to act in that way. But um, yeah, I uh I mean, I think one of the interesting things that I've been sort of batting around and thinking about is sort of um, not directly to this question, but, you know, is essentially, yeah, how do you impact investors or those who are impact oriented have typically been in the position where the burden of case making falls on them, right? So it's sort of, they need to make the economic case for why gender lens investing or climate investing or racial equity investing is uh, you know, should be should be adopted, or in this case, why maybe we should deconcentrate capital flows. And you know, one of the things that I think is interesting, if you take gender lens investing as, as an example, is there's been 10 years of data and 10 years of reports, and we've known for 10 years that women uh, founders receive two less than 2.3 percent of all venture capital every year. We have known this for 10 years. The data is there. The data is there to say that women founders outperform. That you know, diverse managers. Um, outperform, and and yet it doesn't change behavior. And I think there's there's a difference sort of between the economic and the moral case, and it's very situational which you need to use. But I think in in this case, I, I honestly don't know <laughs> what is going to be effective at convincing people to to um, to adopt some of this behavior. I mean, I think Delilah might want to jump in here with her perspective, but. You know, I, there's there's the constant problem of confirmation bias, where as as many reports as you turn out trying to make the economic case for something, I've seen time and time again people adopt data that essentially affirms their their previous conclusions and ignore, question, or invalidate data that you know challenges challenges their perspective. So that's just human nature, and I think that is that's a really difficult hurdle to overcome. The other thing, when I think about it from a passive perspective, that allows people to sort of delegate a lot of their problems to somebody else um, and also obfuscate some of their duties. You know, maybe one way to think about it for asset owners is that there's actually a limit to the amount of passive that they actually have in their funds. And it actually forces people to be more considerate around how they actually allocate capital because it's quite an easy way to say, look, I just invest in the indices and I just follows that, that trend. Um, it's a very easy way to just you know, delegate risks to, that, to somebody else and blame the broader market, you know, and it's made sense for a lot of asset owners to do that and move to more and more passive or systematic style strategies that are, you know, a de facto passive as well. 
it's mm-hmm. now we've moved a lot moved further and further away from active which used to be through fundamental analysis people really understanding a lot of these ESG characteristics ESGs now being marketed around as this great thing but if you go back 20 30 years even going back to the methodology of of Buffett and Munger they're thinking about the whole stakeholder environment that the business operates in and that was how right. we actually thought about fundamental analysis and built up evaluation for a business and and what's its long-term objectives and now we we throw an ESG label and that's how it's done and we throw that in a passive uh, vehicle it just seems to be yeah. <laughs> a real a real problem and so I don't know maybe well, Deli- oh yeah Oh, sorry. I'll just jump in and invoke, uh, you know, Jack Bogle, who himself before he died says, "What what happens when everyone indexes chaos, chaos without limit?" Right. So he he knew that this was um, problematic, and he was, you know, one of the the first um, popularizers of that vehicle. Um, and I just did want to sort of narrow in on that point around addition. What I heard you saying was sort of like the additionality of ESG and what. You know, originally when ESG was um, was sort of first floating, the concept was we need to incentivize people to go where the markets will not naturally go, uh, and commit their capital in ways that you know that doesn't necessarily means it mean it's concessionary, but it does mean that there's some sort of market resistance to to people allocating in this way, and. Right now, you know, most ESG investors should just call themselves regular investors because there's really little differentiation between their strategies uh, than any normal investor would would have. And and so I think that um, I do think that you know have again going back to a more active approach where where they can start to ask the question about where markets are currently under investing. Um, you know, is a is a really I think that's a key area for ESG investors to um, to begin to adopt and sort of, you know, go back to first principles uh, around the movement. Yeah, I would just um, build on that and say that um, I think where ESG historically was about risk management um, and managing environmental, social and governance risks and in investments, it's starting to converge with impact investing where there's a recognition that there's a real opportunity to pursue uh, underserved industries and um, more regenerative industries. And so it does seem like uh, there's an opportunity now to steer investors who have historically been interested in ESG to more, um, more opportunity there. Uh, and they would ideally benefit from better diversification and lower valuations because those are not crowded markets. Um, the the other thing that, or at least not at first, wouldn't be crowded markets, but the way the market seems to work, eventually it would become crowded. Um, but in any case, um, the other thing I just wanted to say is that, you know, in terms of the question of how do you get asset owners and allocators to deconsolidate capital flows and should there be a minimum or, or a maximum I guess, of uh, passive investing in a portfolio. I think that the problem with institutional investors is that they're under a lot of pressure to cut costs. And so it's not that investing in smaller niche strategies is that unattractive, but there aren't really the resources or there might be a fear that there aren't the resources to do it. You might have to, as a CIO or as trustees, you might expect that in order to pursue that strategy, you might need to build a larger investment team internally to do the diligence on all of those smaller strategies. You might be concerned about the transaction costs of all those smaller strategies adding up, particularly in private markets. Um, 
and uh, and in a whole host of other factors that um, have real legitimacy and need to be workshopped. So I don't think that there's an intentional aversion to deconsolidating capital flows, but we really need to see where the resistance is coming from. And that just seems to be bureaucracy or, you know, paradigms that we have existed in for a long time where there's just not a real opportunity for self-reflection and there's a bit of inertia, inertia. And so our goal is to create spaces to have these conversations and to say, where is this inertia coming from? And what can we do to co-create solutions so that we can deconsolidate capital flows? So I think that's a, a perfect place to wrap up the conversation today because we do actually have two other podcasts that will come from this one, one which will be looking at the systemic risks around the investment structures and then how do we move towards uh, a regenerative uh, investment structure that can actually help us get back to um, a more balanced approach. So I think that's a perfect place to leave it today. Thank you very much for your time today, Delilah and Denise. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.